Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Jason Coleman, and you are listening to Things That Make You Go Hmm Book Review Podcast. And welcome to another episode of Things That Make You Go Hmm Book Review Podcast. I am your one-man book club, Jason Coleman. Thank you so much for joining me. It's always so nice to have you guys back and listening to me rant on about another book. Um, Again, if you're not familiar with uh, my channel, uh, this is basically a podcast where I review books that mostly deal with self, uh, almost exclusively nonfiction that deal with self-help. Uh, economics, behavioral psychology, heuristics, um, self-help, anything basically that just kind of deals with uh, how how you might think about life or how how this new idea, how these ideas might shape your own way how you go through life. And so that's that's what I try to do. And I, I try to review these books, just give you a very quick analysis. I, I wouldn't even necessarily say it's a complete review of the book. I think it's just kind of more of a jump off point for me to take some of the points the author explained, uh, I guess, combine them with my own thought processes and give you my own ideas, and so maybe if you decide this could be a book that you were interested in, then, you know, you have some uh, some additional, I guess what I would tell, I'm a public school teacher by trade, what I tell my students, I'm giving you some some supplemental information to, uh, to help you enjoy uh, the reading experience if you decide to do that. Okay, all right, enough of the uh, overview here. Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about uh, today's book that we're going to be reviewing. And again, uh, I should probably give you a warning right now. Um, <clears throat> I do try to uh, refrain from using inappropriate language in my podcasts. But unfortunately, um, every once in a while I have to simply because <laughs> of either the title of the author's book or because how the author explained things uses a lot of profanity. So if I'm ever using um, swear words, it's only because the author left me very little opportunity. I don't want to I don't want to recalibrate and re you know splice the author's work up. So just be prepared for that. All right, with your disclaimer, uh, today's book that we're going to be reviewing is called Bullshit Jobs uh, by David Graeber. And this book started, apparently this book started off as a blog post that this author uh, wrote. And apparently, I think this author's from, I want to say he's from England. He might be living in the United States. I know that he works as an anthropology professor. And uh, he, he mostly does uh, sociological uh, anthropology, meaning that he he looks for groups of people and he, he studies human behavior. Now, these people tend to be famous who work with I guess, tribes that live in remote parts of the world, but they don't have to be. Uh, I would say probably most sociologists uh, in these days, this day and age, probably work mostly with our our regular urban audiences, um, trying to figure out how they go about life, how they make decisions, and it's, it's, it's very interesting. Okay, so apparently this started off as a, as a blog post, and what he did was he asked people how many of them thought that they had a bullshit job? 
Now, I, I just want to say right off the bat here that I think it's very easy at this point to become very judgmental over somebody like, oh, you work at McDonald's, so you have a bullshit job. And I'm saying this because I'm college educated and I wear a suit and tie and so I hold a position of authority over you and therefore I can make this judgment. The author is completely well aware that this could take place. And so he says right from the, he says from the outset that when he asked people this question, he asked them to self-report whether they had a bullshit job or not. So it's not even that the author didn't even make any decisions whether he thought that people had a bullshit job. He let people decide that they wanted whether they felt that they had a bullshit job or not. And this was, okay, and so the author thought maybe 10% of people uh, believed that they had a, a bullshit job. But it turns out that it people were self-reporting upwards of 30 to 40% of people believed that they had a bullshit job. So the reason why I am astounded by this is because if you read, uh, if you you can listen to my podcast about this too if you want, but if you read the book uh, by Taylor Sherratt, The Optimism Bias, most people tend to have pretty uh, unrealistic high opinions of themselves, their, their work, their friends, their family, so on and so forth. So for somebody to actually admit that their job is bullshit because, uh, I mean, this is where most people are dedicating, most people dedicate the the vast majority of their productive hours of their day to their job. So that's that's making quite a statement. So for people to actually say that they believe that they have a bullshit job is amazing. And the author is very quick to clarify, and I want to clarify this too, that the that there's pretty strict parameters for what constitutes a bullshit job. Uh, uh, based upon the, what the blog post was that the author uh, put out there. And he said the first thing we have to do is we have to be careful that we're not confusing a bullshit job with a shit job, okay? And, and the distinction is important. So, for example, um, let me go back to the McDonald's analogy. So, if you work at McDonald's, then you might consider that to be a shit job, meaning that you have to work very hard and you don't get paid very much. So what distinguishes that from a bullshit job? Well, there are three criteria that David Graeber uh, lays out. And the first criteria is that if the job were to somehow disappear, would anybody miss it? Or would anybody even notice if that were the case? Okay. And McDonald's, working at McDonald's just doesn't qualify. If McDonald's wasn't there, I think people would be very upset about it if they couldn't go and and get their food. Now, granted, I mean, maybe it's not the healthiest food in the world and and maybe their time and money could be better spent elsewhere, but that's not the point. Society has decided to value fast food. I personally love fast food, okay? And so they are conferring a benefit to society. So that's the first thing is if you have a bullshit job is if you somehow if your job was to if the job was to go away, would anybody miss it? Okay. Now, uh the second cri- criteria is it, the job uh, provides no discernible benefit to society. And again, um, you, could, you could take people who are delivery drivers for, say, Amazon or McDonald's workers, and they do confer a benefit to society. I, I'm, I get Amazon packages all the time. 
Um, I go out for fast food all the time. They are providing a benefit. Now, whether or not the benefit is ultimately good for society is not the judgment the author is making, and I'm glad he didn't. He's just saying that they give a benefit to society. Now, here's the third one. Okay, and this one is important. I'll touch a little bit more on this later. But he says there's normally an element of fraud involved in, in the job description. So, for example, I work as a public school teacher. So when I when people ask me what I do, I, I don't real there's there's no real deception in, involved. I, I just say I work as a school teacher, and people most people have had some experience with going through traditional school. They immediately know what it is that I do. So a good example of this would be um, there was a scandal in the United States maybe about I don't know close to ten years ago. I'm, I'm not even sure anymore. Uh, there was a former mayor. No no no. Excuse me. Former governor. I want to say, of the state of New Jersey, Chris Christie. And he had this um, he had this scandal where he was trying to get like these mayors from his local municipalities to endorse him to be governor. And this one mayor didn't. He endorsed his candidate. And so there was this situation where he has an on-ramp. There was an on-ramp onto the bridge from his city. It got closed down mysteriously. They weren't even doing any construction. Uh it turns out that some of Christie's uh, assistants are the ones who ordered it. Christie claimed he had no idea what happened. He didn't give the order. He's not even sure how that all went went down. And they found out that the guy, his name was David something or other, I can't remember. Uh, the guy who gave the order, they were trying to look into his, his background. And he worked at the Port Authority, which is, I suppose, it's this transportation division between New York and New Jersey. And they were looking into his job, and I guess he was he was a technical coordinator consultant or or something of that nature. And nobody knew exactly what his job actually was. It was a self-appointed job by Chris Christie. And uh, basically, he was there to be Christie's assistant, I think. It's not all entirely clear. They said he wasn't really at the office very much. Um, and so that would be an, an example of of an element of fraud involved in the job. So... So, of course, there's no real, you can't say that about shit jobs. So that's the thing is you have to make that distinguish between a bullshit job and a shit job. Now, the the important distinction also is that shit jobs are necessary for society. Bullshit jobs aren't. And that's something that we have to consider. So the question then becomes, how did we even get to this point to begin with? Like, why do we even have nearly a third of people working in these bullshit jobs? And what the author says is that you have to think about who runs society. And maybe this idea took, well, okay, I got to go into a little bit of history here. And then I'll, I'll get back to my point. But it probably, the author thinks it probably started with the communism, um, you know, around the, the early 19th century, where the communists, as part of their plan for their societies, they wanted everybody working. And so they had to create unnecessary jobs in order just to keep people employed so you'd have 15 different people that would be helping you helping assist people fill out forms or or whatever the case is and then from there it probably evolved during the industrial revolution and the in the author makes this fascinating point that i never thought about that the industrial revolution uh, was a fascinating time because this was the first time when people began working in these factories where employers could own an 
they could own you. They could own your time. Okay, that that hadn't really ever happened before in society. Um, let's say you know in in a pastoral you know Europe, uh, you know England, maybe during the the Middle Ages or later on or whatever the case is. You know, if you needed a barn to be built, you would pay somebody, uh, however, to build to build you a barn, okay? Um, or during the colonial period of, of America, or whatever the case is, you know, you needed a ship built, you needed um, supplies to be delivered, you, you paid people for a service. You didn't pay people for, for their time that they're working for you. So a good example of this, I think, is when you go to your auto mechanic. I mean, you don't, you don't, to my knowledge, you don't oversee what the mechanic is doing with your car. He says, hey, you need a new alternator. You need your tires changed. You ask him about how long is it going to take you to do it and the materials and, and you work out and you, you work out a price point. Okay. Well, that seems very natural to me, but once you could actually own people's time, um, the thought that you could have these employees that would not actually be doing anything productive while you are paying them became unthinkable. So you have so you have these masses of of people working in these jobs where they can accomplish the work in a, a much shorter period of time um, than what they're necessarily being paid for, and so they have to like dis- they have to create all of this unnecessary work. Um, in order to keep their their supervisors happy, so this is you know, and and the the author he gets into some really creative distributions of what kind of bullshit jobs, but basically this is where you start to need all of these supervisors, which are just fancy words I think for security guards who are policing your your workforce. I there's a great example if you uh, two movies, um, one from the late 90s, I think one from the early part of the 2000s. Uh, the first one is Clock Watchers uh, with with a young Parker Posey and it's just about these girls who work as uh, I guess secretary assistants in some office. Um to- all of them total bullshit jobs. And they said that mostly what they try to do is just try to look busy. So you'll see them like uh, rearranging, uh, you know, the paper clips, or they have to, you know, run down to the mailroom 12, 15 times a day, um, just in order for them to to look busy so they don't get in trouble. Uh, the office space uh, with Charlie Sheen is another fantastic um, example of like a, a bunch of guys who work in these bullshit jobs. And they all have to obsess about these things that are really not important. Like there's this something called a TSA report, which is some made up term. And Charlie Sheen apparently forgot to uh, put like a plastic cover. And like everybody gets very frustrated about this. They start sending him these email memos about proper protocol for attaching uh, a cover sheet to the TSA report. <laughs> and I, I think that's a, you know, it's it's a great example of how when our economy shifted, we, we, we basically needed more of a system where we could monitor people to make sure that the wealthy overseers weren't somehow being cheated out of any of their money. Um, and so, so let me return back to my point then. So, so how, how did this come about? And you have to think about who runs the country. 
So the country is is not run by the 99%. The country is run by the 1%. Like, I, I heard some horrifying statistic that I live in the wealthiest country in the world, the United States, and something like 100 people in our country, um, a country of over 350 million people, I might add, like 100 people have half the country's wealth, okay? So... It's not even really the one person. I mean, if you want to get technical, it's not even really the one percent that you know that that make all the rules for the country. It's really probably the point oh one percent, but one percent sounds better. So that's what we'll go with. But the economy and the superstructure of our society is going to reflect the values of the one percent. It's not going to reflect the values of the ninety nine percent. If it did, we would probably have a lot more um, artistic endeavors. We'd have a lot more craftsmen. We'd have a lot more. Um, educators we'd have a lot more medical professionals we'd have a lot more researchers we'd, we'd have much more of those things if the uh if the 99 percent actually called the shots in the country it kind of reminds me of i was having this discussion uh with a colleague of mine and uh, a number of years ago and we were talking about uh our taxes and he said you know what i think people should do for our taxes he said i think they should be given a portfolio and with the portfolio, they should decide where they want their taxes to go. And he said, if that happened, if people could actually pick out, pick and choose where they wanted their tax dollars to go, then spending for medicine, infrastructure, education, training, all of those things would go way up and spending for our military would go way down. But we don't live in that society. We live in a society where the 1% and the super bureaucracy control everything. So what are they going to value? Well, they're going to value something similar to what they would have valued in a feudal system, where you basically had wealthy, wealthy landowners who, who called all the shots. So you're going to have kings, and you're going to have lords, and you're going to have vassals, and retainers, and serfs. And basically, uh, masses and masses of people who are there to serve a small percentage of the population. So in order for something like that to work, what would you need? Well, you would need a crap ton of security, which is where, where you get your military, your police force, you know, so on and so forth. And you're going to need lots and lots of servants, okay? And those servants come in the form of, well, we've, we, we, we like to think we're a much more sophisticated society. So those servants would be, we would call them consultants, or we would call them managerial supervisors. If you read the book by Thomas Frank, um, Listen Liberal, then you will, he talks about this whole, this whole class of people that were created by, by the wealthy uh, uh, political class called the professional managerial class. And basically what they're, it's kind of, it's kind of unknown what their jobs really are, but, but really what they're there to do is to serve uh, the wealthy shot callers who, who run our society. So that's, that's where the superstructure of the bullshit jobs has originated and why it continues to flourish, even though it, it confers very little benefit to society. Um, a good example is in our country, as we have, I think, is a very bizarre system of, of medicine funding where, I don't know, you're supposed to get a job and your job is supposed to provide you with medical benefits, which I think is is horrible. Um, it, it allows the business basically to hold a ransom over your head. And if you leave your job, then, you know, you're also going to abandon your medical benefits as well. As a matter of fact, they've done surveys with women who are on public assistance 
and they've asked them what the biggest barrier to going back out into the workforce for them is. And they always say the same thing. It's that they don't have any means of childcare and they don't have any means of uh, medical insurance for either them or, or their children. So in our society, we've decided that our, our employer overlords get to determine whether we have health care or not. And so they were asking uh, our former president, Barack Obama, who I always thought was more one of our more left-leaning presidents. They asked him, they said, uh, you know, why don't you just transition to a state-sponsored medical system like they have in just about every industrialized country? And he said, well, and he said something I thought was fascinating. He said, you have to think about the people who work at Blue Cross, Blue Shield. Those are the two large insurance providers in our country. All the administrative positions who, you know, who are employed by private insurance, all the political positions, all the funding, the political funding that comes through them. We can't just throw them all out uh, of the workforce with with having no job. That, That would be that would be ruinous. I've heard the exact same argument when it comes to asking why the United States doesn't reduce our military spending. We our military spending, we spend something like 10 times more than like the next 10 countries combined or or, or something something obscene of that nature. And it's not even like the money that we're spending for the military. It's not even as if like the majority of it is going towards the soldiers or going towards humanitarian efforts or or anything of that nature. Like the the vast majority of of the money just seems to go to, you know, uh, consultants. Uh, it goes towards projects. Uh, many of them are never finished. It goes towards technology to to build uh, weapons of destruction that are are almost certainly never going to be used. I, it it is bizarre. It is freaking bizarre. Uh, but again, uh, it it's maybe it's not really all that crazy when you reflect on. The values of who's actually running the country and who's supposed to benefit from all of this ridiculous waste in terms of security and and servants, uh, if that's the case. Okay, all right. So I went on a bit of of a, of a little bit of a tangent there. So why don't we get to a few more actual uh, concrete examples here of some bullshit jobs? So people who work in the well, he says people, for example, who pass out towels or doormen could be considered bullshit jobs. You don't need them. They're just there to provide an ambiance of wealth uh, for people. I tend to have a bit of a soft spot for people who are employed in those positions because these are usually people who are in you know, a bit desperate financial situation. They can't really find anything else. Our society doesn't lend itself to to them to you know to finding you know better more enjoyable more fulfilling careers so i I have a a little bit more of a soft spot now the one (laughs) the ones that really get to me though and the ones who the author seems to have a a bullseye on are the people who work in the financial sector people who work as corporate attorneys um if these people were to disappear nobody would notice okay and even these people, uh, you know, even they agree that they're not, they're not exactly sure what benefit that they have towards society. And this is, and the author talks about this, that this is a very dehumanizing aspect of, of our world because when people don't necessarily see any benefit to what they're doing, it's even if they have a situation where they're getting paid pretty good money to not do a whole lot, very often people still develop a lot of of sadness and depression because they just don't feel any sort of fulfillment. 
it, it kind of reminds me of the book by Barbara Einreich where it was called, uh, well, she did two different books. She, she did one book where she worked, you know, strictly as minimum wage jobs to see if she could make a living. Spoiler, she couldn't. Uh, then she did another job where she talks about trying to work in, in the uh, business uh, sector called uh, Smile. And, uh, the, and she was saying in the book Smile that a lot of the, the jobs that she, she was able to get in the financial sector, a lot of them just had to do with going to meetings, sitting quietly for hours on end through trainings, um, listening to you know people give like these motivational speeches about making money for the company. And she said that um, if given the choice between sitting through these endless meetings and these endless lectures, she would much rather be working as a waitress, which is what she was doing before. And I think that that is so telling. They they were talking about, the author talks about that they were doing a, they did this study with these soldiers um, in, you know, the United States, we have like, you know, all of the, I think we have something like a thousand military bases around the, the world or something. And they were saying that the the morale of the soldiers would get really low because they just didn't really feel like they were doing anything beneficial, which a lot of them went into the army with with very idealistic ideas. And so what what the you know what their commanding officers would would do is they would have them go out into the community and do humanitarian work, like build you know. Uh, dig a ditch, build a wall, uh, assist with car repairs, whatever the case is. And they said that they got so much enjoyment out of it that very often they weren't even necessarily benefiting the communities all that much. And they still kept doing it just because they didn't want the soldiers' morale to drop. Okay, I could I could seriously go on uh, about this for the next hour. But, you know, I, I do want to keep these. I like to keep these podcasts under 30 minutes if I can. So, so I'm going to bring it, to, well, I'm going to finish up with what the author talks about is the solution. And it's the only solution that I can think of as well. And that is, and, and the author is very quick to say that he doesn't want the book to be about solutions. He wants the book to be focused on the problem. So this is only a very small chapter in the back, but this is what was running through my mind the entire time. So I'm glad that the author confirmed this at the end. And the only solution really is a universal basic income. Okay. And if if I, or if me being, you know, the citizen of my country had some sort of financial support, whether I was working or whether I wasn't, it would create a much different dynamic at my job workplace. Uh, let me give you an example. I work as a public school teacher where I am represented by a union. I have worked in the past at a charter school where I had no union protection. Okay, and basically the job, I can't even compare the two. It's, it's night and day. When my supervisors have a problem with me, they negotiate. They talk to me in a way that preserves my dignity. They, they aren't unrealistic about, you know, what the time commitments are going to be, what I can realistically accomplish, and it becomes much more of a conversation. When I worked at the charter school, was, I had no union protection. It was run by a business. The turnover was around 50% of the staff every year. So they just basically said, look, we need you putting in more hours. We need you doing more work. We need you doing more of this. And if you don't like it, go find another job. End of story. And I was in a desperate situation. I didn't have any other source of income. So I basically had to take that torture and abuse. So we have to ask ourselves, if I had some sort of universal, if people have some sort of universal basic income and they're using their job to make more money, but if they're not working, they'll still be able to pay the rent, they'll still be able to get food, they'll still be able to keep their lights turned on, 
Okay, it's going to create a much a much different society. People are going to have to create jobs that people actually want. They're going to have to compensate people appropriately, and that's just not what's going on right now. Now there is now the author acknowledges that there is this great fear that if you if if people don't necessarily have to work for their survival, then they're just not going to work. We're going to have this decadent society of people who just sit around on the couch all day and play on their phones. And he says that's just not borne out by the evidence. That is not how most people operate. He talks about people who've won the lottery. He talks about people who've gained inheritances. Uh, and most of them like will continue to work at some kind of, of a job doing something. Uh, especially if it has some sort of benefit to society. Um, I think about like people like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and all of these other people who who probably work a tremendous amount of hours. They don't have to, okay? They're they're billionaires, okay? But there's an intrinsic need to be of some benefit to society, okay? And so that's why you know why why do retired people continue to volunteer at schools or libraries or, or doing this thing? Because as humans, we've evolved in order to want to make some sort of a contribution. And even the author says, even if the worst case scenario, if that does happen to be the case, where you know people decide that no, I'm just not going to work. I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to be like those that society from Wall E, the, the futuristic people, where they're all so overweight and uh, decadent that they have to be flown around in these space wheelchairs okay even if that happens he says it'll not it, it would ne- not be more than five or ten percent of the population that does something like that and he said we we already have you know about a third over 30 percent of people who are working in jobs that confer no benefit to society so i i just don't see um i, I don't see any other solution to this problem other than freeing people from the chains of their overlords and supervisors on their workplace and creating a much more equitable situation uh, where you have to negotiate with your employees rather than being able to keep them in a virtual chokehold attached to these dehumanizing, unmeaningful uh, jobs just to create a a subsistence uh, living. Excuse me. Okay. All right. All right. I know. I got a little preachy on this one. I'm I'm normally not quite... I'm not quite on that level. I guess just being in this pandemic and being in the quarantine, I'm totally socially distancing. I'm not going, I only go outside to, you know, get necessary things. I'm not even, I don't meet up with friends or family or anything like that. I've had a lot of time to think about the economic system that we have in our society. Who's really necessary for society and who isn't? And how are we going to come out of this pandemic on the other side? I don't know. These are fascinating questions. I don't have the answer. I don't think the author has the answer. But until we really are ready to have these tough conversations, I don't see anything improving either. Okay. All right. That's enough for me. Thank you. If you made it to the end of this podcast and uh, you got through all this rambling, thank you so much. It's, it's very meaningful to me. Um, if you could, if you get an opportunity, if you could write a, a if you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, or Podbean, if you could write a positive review or give me some stars just so I could help grow my audience, just because it's very validating for me to know that people enjoy this enough to recommend it to somebody else out there, I would I would very much appreciate it, okay? All right, I will be back in a couple weeks with uh, my next book. I don't know what it's going to be, but uh, if, you're, if you'd like to learn more about this really crazy uh, feudal system of an economy that we have going on right now, then I would definitely recommend Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. Okay, that's all for now. Take care. Happy reading.